Peter Pitts is president and co-founder of the Center for Medicine and the Public Interest. Prior to founding CMPI, Pitts was a senior fellow for healthcare studies at the Pacific Research Institute. From 2002 to 2004, Peter was FDA's associate commissioner for external relations, serving as senior communications and policy advisor to the commissioner. He is the editor of the new book, Coincidence or Crisis, a discussion of global prescription medicine counterfeiting. Peter, it's great to see you. My pleasure. You and I met last month at a panel from bio the ceo conference and we were discussing the ipi and you said what a stupid idea (laughs) what is stupid about the ipi what is your concern about the ipi why do you think it's a stupid idea well i think you know from a thirty thousand foot level trying to insert the u.s into a reference pricing scenario doesn't work you know a hundred different ways to Sunday. Mm-hmm. And what what I really object to is making it sound like it's a good idea in a very simple way. These are obviously very complicated propositions. And to say that on the one hand, European pricing is unfair to Americans or taking advantage of American patients, I understand that. I mean, there is ample evidence that the U.S. is subsidizing global R&D. I mean, yeah. we, we agree with that, right? Sure. But you, know, okay. there, you have to look at it like, for example, I mean, 90% of the volume of drugs used in the U.S., as in most Western countries, are generic drugs. Mm -hmm. And generic drugs are less expensive in the U.S. than in Europe or Canada. Because they have a higher volume. Exactly. Volume and also that we make the trade-off that will give innovators a uh, a intellectual property protection and the ability to make back their money. And then when the product goes off patent, the prices plummet. Obviously, in Europe and in Canada and other price-controlled countries, you know, the bargain is different, where you'll get a new medicine at a lower price, but when it goes off patent, it will more or less retain that price, even though there'll be generic competition. People don't understand that. And yeah. then also, you know, to to reference price countries that don't allow their own citizens access to these medicines uh, seems a little upside down to me and shows a, a relative ignorance as to how, you know, drugs are controlled throughout the world. Now, Secretary Azar said that the IPI would only impact research and development of companies by 1%. What, what do you think of that? It's a, it's a made-up number. Why not uh, 0.1%? <laughs> he's, just, he's just pulling numbers you know, out of his pocket you know, to serve his own purposes, not to put too fine a point on it. You know, at the end of the day, as you said earlier, you know, the, the U.S. Is the, is the driving force behind pharmaceutical development because we reward innovation. And if you, if you take that away, you know, the, the quid pro quo is you will get less innovation. Sure. Um, full disclosure, we did some crunching on that uh, number, that 1% number at Vital Transformation, and we ran one of the drugs, Ysabri, from Biogen through uh, the new price through their balance sheet, and we saw an impact of closer to 30% on their R&D budget. What do you think a 30% cut would do to a company like Biogen? Well, first of all, the 30%, it smells right. It's, mm-hmm. It sounds like it should be somewhere within the vicinity of above 25%. So sure. 35% certainly makes sense to me without having crunched the math. And what we'll do to a company, it, it will gut companies, certainly uh, companies that only have a small portfolio. And for those companies that have larger portfolios, they'll simply move to other therapeutic areas that have a broader guarantee of success. And I think what people don't understand, and shame on Alex Azar, he should know better, that the price of failure is enormous. There's value, of course, scientifically in failure. That's how you learn and move forward. But you have to factor that into uh, the reasons you have patents and the way prices are, are set. And then, of course, you know, there's the unique slash peculiar way that the U.S. reimburses products. In, in some ways, that's upside down, and it certainly needs to be addressed. But the way to solve the uh, the problem of pricing and access in the U.S. is not to somehow mimic you know, foreign nations who, on the other hand, the president is demonizing as unfair. So it just seems kind of, you know, not well thought out 
in a number of different ways. Yeah, rhetorically, it doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, you're, you're doing something wrong, so we're going to basically copy what you're doing. I know intellectually that doesn't make sense. So then what would be some options to try and square this circle and get the pricing more in line and actually get reimbursement more fair? What would be a way to do this that doesn't harm access in the bottom line of some of these companies? You know, when you, when, when you want to talk about what policymakers think and what politicians think, because they're two different groups, <laughs> sure. I think you have, to, you have to understand that politicians are really no more or less intellectually savvy savvy than the average the average american citizen mm-hmm. uh so when they say we want health care quote-unquote like in europe quote-unquote where it's free right you know you really have to start way down on the discussion totem pole you know ain't, ain't nothing for free yeah and as a, someone who lives in europe trust me i'm you know i'm paying many many thousands of euros a year for my health of course and of, you know, and the trade-off that you make to you know a, a universal government-run system is rationing and you know they understand that, and and, they're, and people are honest about it. That's the trade off that they've that they've accepted. That, I, don't, I don't think that's an ex- a uh, a trade off we're willing to make here. We can't even have the discussion about the excessive spending, in my opinion, on, on end of life care. But that's that's another topic. Sure. I think if you look at where the Europeans are going, where they've been relative to Nice and the quality and things like that, and ICWIG and, so, and HAS and, and so forth, they they've understood that the the way that you measure healthcare technology assessment needs to evolve and it needs to evolve based on does the product work? What do the outcomes look like? So more of a value-based proposition. And I think as the Europeans, you know, take the lead on that, we need to look at them and understand what they're doing and adopt it ourselves. I mean, obviously, this started in England, you know, uh, with, you know, defining what success means, and then re- reimbursing against it. I think that that's a good starting point, which is reimbursing for value versus looking at what the prices. All right. So if we're talking about some type of HTA system, which obviously is now being rolled out through ICER, it's starting to be more ubiquitous in the United States. There are some complaints, many complaints in Europe, particularly from patients that HTA often restrict access. So how do we balance and make that more of an American system that doesn't necessarily restrict access, but also provides value? What would you be looking for from the CMPI's position? Well, I think, you know, ICER is... uh you know, it's going to fail. It's already failing. He's basically saying what we what we need to do is what Nice did 15 years ago. <laughs> and no one's. I mean, there's a lot of press about it, and some companies are jumping through hoops. But at the end of the day, I think it has very little impact, almost no impact, on reimbursement decisions. Mm-hmm. You know, by anybody. I think what's going to really happen is, especially as we move to gene therapy and CART issues and things like that, CART T issues and things like that, are people saying, okay, you know what? What's the value of this medicine relative to patient outcomes, especially when you have the genetic one and done cure? Sure. Propositions. And, you know, it really starts with saying, okay, you know, let's all get together and define what success looks like. And if you can achieve success and we can, and we understand the value of that from a pharmacoeconomic perspective, we can discuss that. And if it doesn't work, we clearly don't want to pay for it. So it's, it's, I think, I think step one is pharmaceutical companies stepping forward as they are and saying, okay, we're willing to put some skin in the game here. Mm-hmm. But pricing is obviously a political problem, too, right? I mean, there is sure. a political issue. And the politicians, we've just had several series of hearings on the Hill. Yep. How do you think they should be responding to the political issue of the fact that these things are getting more expensive? And what is driving sure. the – and from your perspective, what is driving those costs? Increases? Well, I think the, I think what's finally coming out in the U.S. at least is what does what does – price mean and sure. i think to the average american patient who walks to the pharmacy you know they don't care if the wall street journal reports that the, the drug is going to cost five hundred thousand dollars you know they care what their copay is or what their coinsurance is and both of these issues are important and i think that for example uh the department of health and human services looking to do away with the pbm safe harbor mm-hmm. uh is, is a huge step in the right direction that if these if these enormous rebates are being given by the pharmaceutical companies largely to guarantee formulary 
position that a significant portion of those savings should be passed along to the consumer at a point of purchase, so to speak. Sure. Now, that would be one regulatory thing that could be done. But obviously, that from data we've seen, that's 15 to 20% of some of the cost increases. That still leaves 80%. Isn't part of the problem also that we're looking at just a change in science as we become more targeted, as we're getting more stratified, as we're identifying smaller and smaller responding populations? It is just uh, the simple fact of math that we're going to be putting that investment over a smaller and smaller population. Sure. That's exactly right. I mean, and, and also, you know, a, to to build a horse and buggy costs a certain number, and then to build a you know 2019 version Bentley, you know, <laughs> costs something else. You know, but the point is, again, we're also not we're also looking at n of one, n of ten, n of five hundred products versus blockbuster drugs over the course of the whole population. And I think that there's a general misunderstanding about how much these drugs cost to develop. A and then B, who foots those development costs? Because you have a lot of politicians who say, well, NIH invents these drugs and then the pharmaceutical company somehow gets a hold of them and just rapes the public and uh, you know that's so that's that's incredibly far from the truth but whenever you're caught having to explain you're behind the eight ball. There was a wonderful study that was done at University of San Diego where they looked at their biotech cohort for a 10-year period. And what I love about that study is it actually looked at success factors, whether it was a listing on the initial public offering, whether it was financial VC input into the biotech, or whether it was NIH money that created success factors in those companies statistically. And what was intriguing is overwhelmingly in that study, the IPO was the number one driver of success. What they found with the NIH money, however, was that it was more of a predictor of failure. And it's because the NIH money actually correlates very highly to tenure track, not necessarily to research success in the marketplace. Well, I've seen that. I actually I saw that study and I, I saw a discussion of it at the University of Pennsylvania. And I think the key point there is that tier one funding, funding sure. that comes from the NIH is tenure track funding. And it, it doesn't it doesn't reward success. It rewards continued continued need for more money, you know. And the, the, but the reason that more and academic excellence, Peter. Oh, of course, yeah. I, I, you know, stipulated. But you know, <laughs> you know, why is why isn't there more industry money being uh, directed into academia? And I think the answer partially is that academics don't want it because it doesn't lead to tenure track. And also, and pharmaceutical companies want results. They want to know we don't. The answer can't be, I need more money. The answer has to be, here's where we are on the pathway to a, pro- a program that might result in a, in a uh, real product. That's as much a, a issue of cognitive dissonance yeah. th- than it is uh, you know, anything else. But you know, there's money on both sides, and we need to have more of both. Yeah, and what we've seen in Europe, ironically, is something a little bit different. The commission really puts money in those companies that have a much higher possibility of success, which we found quite fascinating. You can actually use private money to predict the amount of EU funding. Again, that's sort of counterintuitive, and I don't think anyone had seen that, but that's what the data showed. Part of the problem, too, is when you have a lot of you know these small startup companies with no product on the market, uh, the president, chairman, chief scientist sure. you know, will tell you that they've got a game-changing molecule. I've heard that 100,000 times. I've never seen a business plan yet lose money, Peter. <laughs> um, and, but VCs, it's, uh, certainly VCs that are investing in U.S. startup companies, it, to my experience, are much more sophisticated today than they were even two years ago relative to not you know, uh, not investing in smoke and mirrors, but really wanting to understand the pathway to an approved molecule and how it's going to be marketized and the whole, a whole variety of tough conversations. So on February 27th, there were the seven CEOs who were brought to the U.S. Senate and testified to the committee about, you know, the price of medicines. Eight times in the course of that testimony, the term value-based pricing was mentioned. 
From your perspective, what do you think that means? When it came up during the Senate hearings, and I'm, I'm glad that it did, it becomes kind of a teachable moment. Mm-hmm. It's the CEO saying, listen, you know, we're not going to be cowed in front of uh, this committee to say things that we don't mean. You know, for the industry to evolve, we need to start understanding that the denominator isn't price, it's value. Sure. And that price is, is one of many issues that are kind of an above-the-line numerator conversations. But what, I'll tell you, the best question that was asked in that hearing was, what keeps you up at night? The honest answer for all those CEOs should have been my stock price, because that's the truth. But, they, but that's but, a very Milton Friedman, cold-blooded answer. But, but they did focus on, you know, what keeps me up at night is the ability to continue doing business, investing in research, and sure. doing the right thing in changing economic times and in, in rapidly advancing and accelerating scientific times. And I don't think that's something that the members of the Senate really wanted to hear. They wanted simplistic answers to one-dimensional yes or no questions. You know, I think there must have been three or four, maybe more senators that said, okay, yes or no. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm sorry, Senator, that's not the way that the real world operates. It yeah. may be great for sound bites, but in the practical realities of healthcare, it's it's not it's a non-starter. But it's understandable that they're somewhat gun-shy because if you look at the reaction that happened around Savaldi, that $84,000 bought about $250,000 of efficiency in, you know, reduction in liver transplants. And that's using the list price. And that's using the list price. The fact is it was economically valid on any measure no matter how you calculated the cost of that drug and yet they were bludgeoned mercilessly for putting out Savaldi, a cure 97% of the time. Savaldi is a great example for lots of things. Sure. You know, the first is that Gilead was able to come out of it alive, you know, because (laughs) they they went into it for reasons that I really just cannot explain, uh, completely unprepared for the firestorm that followed. I guess the good news is, you know, when you have, I mean, you rarely have this type of discontinuous innovation. You move from a, from a standard of kind of pegylated therapy that's effective 50% of the time, that has huge side effects that, you know. And huge costs associated with it. And, and huge costs associated with it. Yeah. And, you know, liver transplants, et cetera, et cetera, to a completely new paradigm where you have like a 99% cure over a shorter period of time. It's oral. You know, there are, very, there are very few side effects. And one of the lessons learned was not everybody with hep C needs that category of product. Right. You know, so I think, you know, after everybody freaked out, A, all the payers, all the insurance companies realized that they, in fact, were completely in the wrong place, that this is a product that's going to he- save us, you know, billions of dollars over the sh- over a, a relatively short term. And we could potentially eradicate hepatitis C. We could actually get rid of it. It could become what? Polio. Know, smallpox, polio, smallpox. Right. Yeah, exactly. But I guess the problem is, you know, how do you move away from talking about $83,000, which is, a, which is a, a, a meaningless number? Nobody pays that. But, but even at that ridiculous number, this was such an amazing innovation. It, it works. And I think the, you have to keep telling the truth. You have to keep saying, listen, if you want to talk about the list price, which nobody pays, you're not going to – all your math is going to be wrong. Yeah. You need to focus on who's paying what in the system. And most importantly, in the people that get the least amount of attention in these policy conversations is, has that impact to copay or, or coinsurance, you know, which is what, what, what voters are worried about. Changing tack here a little bit, this is a – data point that I don't think a lot of folks in the U.S. in particular realize. We've analyzed the international movement of mature biotech companies, phase two, coming into phase three. And what we see is that 70% of those over the last three years have been acquired by the United States. So there's an enormous transfer of wealth, at least in assets and intellectual property from the globe to the United States. And part of the reason why is that 80% of the profit from new IP is derived in the United States alone. What would happen if we started losing that profit lead and stopped sucking up all those assets? 
Well, you know, these pharmaceutical companies, first of all, they're they're global companies, the big the big ones. So to call just because you know their CEOs may be American or they're based in New Jersey or you know Wilmington, you know, they're they're, they're global companies and they're cash rich. Mm-hmm. So the question then becomes, why are they going out and buying companies versus building new facilities? Mm-hmm. And the answer is because the, the failure cost of R and D is so enormous. When you can see a molecule that looks promising, you go out and you buy it and you pay a hefty premium for it. You know, if that stopped. I don't think that the repercussions are hard to predict. They would, these molecules would simply cease to exist because you can't develop them in your garage. This isn't the, the days are gone by where a, a pharmacist and a chemist can get together in their garage and and make a molecule. You know, you know, even going into phase one with biologics are is just a profoundly different proposition. And unless you had cash-rich U.S. companies willing to fund the development of these molecules, they're simply going to vanish. Long term, though, is it sustainable for the U.S. to be the only top dog in town is this healthy for the sector and healthy for patients well you know you know having kmart or walmart i'm dating myself you know having, <laughs> having a big company being your only customer is great as long as that company doesn't turn around and start squeezing you right. for things so i think overall it's probably good to spread the wealth a little bit both literally and figuratively but considering the policies in europe and around the world i don't really see that happening you know and so and also from a kind of a philosophical perspective you've got the u.s entrepreneurial spirit understanding the concept of you know, investing for success and accepting failure and, and, and continuing on. So at least in the foreseeable future, I don't really see that shifting. And I don't really see that as, see that as a bad thing unless the government, you know, steps in aggressively and, and really screws things up. <laughs> if we look at the Tufts University data, which I know is quite controversial and often causes people's heads to explode, roughly 51% of the total cost of development, which is pushing close to $3 billion now, almost half of that is financing costs, financing failure. And it's taking about 11 years. What tools do you think we could use now to maybe start going after that 11-year period Mm -hmm. to try and reduce costs as opposed to just putting in price ceilings? One big way is to kind of really change the paradigm about how you design clinical trials. And I think the FDA has been very uh, vocal about that in terms of, on the one hand, needing large-scale randomized control trials for some things, kind of Mm -hmm. the traditional gold standard, but then moving to more basket trial conversations, you know, looking at a much more aggressive um, post-marketing pharmacovigilance view. I think that the Europeans, from a PRAC perspective, have done a better job. We don't have in this country conditional approvals, but I think the best we can probably do is much more strident post-marketing requirements. That's certainly doable. And of course, real-world evidence. You know, we, we, we should be able now, because of technology, you know, to be able to glean more evidence more quickly through what happens from um, efficacy, risk and benefit in a clinical trial and safety and efficacy to effectiveness in the real world. And that's not just for adverse events. It's also for things that we didn't expect on the positive side, label changes, for example. Sure. You know, if we, if we could come close to eradicating, and I hesitate to say that, the requirement for full-scale clinical trials for label extensions, wow, that's, uh, that's tremendous. Friends of Cancer Research is doing a ton of work on that right now and, and having a lot of success. I mean, how much of this mentality has changed since your time at the FDA 10 years ago? I think that when I was at the FDA, we really began this conversation. We began to think about using Bayesian statistical analysis versus additional people or rats. Mm -hmm. And, And back in the day, in 2003, people were like, what? Statistical analysis? You know, are you out of your mind? And now that seems so archaic. Mm-hmm. So I think that I think that that philosophy began 10, 15 years ago and really has evolved nonstop. I mean, even though commissioners come and go and presidents come and go, the senior career staff at the FDA is still there. And I'll call out Janet Woodcock 
by name. I think she really bought into this concept early and has driven it forward to where it is today. So 21st Century Cures was seen as a potential game changer three years ago when it was brought in four years ago now. What key provisions do you think will have the longest impact on your members at the CMPI? Well, I think that you know, 21st Century Cures was a uh, arduous path because it really began with the concept of FDA as the problem. <laughs> FDA, FDA yeah, as, you're right. FDA as, I, I've never put it that way, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> FDA as sea anchored innovation. Yeah. And after a lot of hard work by myself and others, we've, we finally got the congressional staff to go, oh, okay. I mean, FDA is actually part of the solution. Right. And then moving forward from there. So I think that the biggest takeaway from 21st Century Cures is what it won't do. It won't handcuff the FDA. It doesn't say that we don't need the FDA. It, does, it basically says FDA is going to drive is going to be the first among equals relative to driving things forward. I think the biggest thing that I like about 21st Century Cures is that it permitted the FDA to be where it is now relative to permitting a broader exchange of free fare, free and fair exchange of scientific information that's truthful, accurate, anonymous-leading, and off-label. Yeah. You know, both once a product is on the market and even during the clinical trial period during kind of an expanded access phase of development. So, last question for you, Peter. What what do you think is going to happen here with the IPI and some of the Medicare Part D discussions that we're having today? There's the um, the bill that was just put forth that even includes some things about compulsory licenses mm-hmm. being thrown into Medicare. Where do you think this is going to end up? Well, I think part, you know, part D has been an enormous success. It was one of the most important things I worked on when I was in government. And, you know, it's seniors love it. You know, it, it provides choice at a fair at a fair price. Pharmaceutical companies like it, and incorporates competition too. Exactly, it uses competition as as the, as as the philosophy as as it should, and it works. You know, I think when you begin monkeying around, saying things like, "Well, the federal government needs to directly negotiate," well, I got news for you, they already do. Yeah. You know, and on all the studies done by the government and private industry that that talks about price controls always shows that a it doesn't significantly lower prices unless you radically reduce choice. And that seems to be absent from a lot of the Medicare for all conversations. If you want a system that provides broader access, that comes with rationing. If you think that's okay, that's fine. I, I respect that, but we can't not discuss it. You know, in, in Part B, where the IPI conversation comes into place, I think it's, it's, it's I'll repeat it, it's a, it's a stupid idea that needs to die a quick death. <laughs> you know, nobody likes it. I think that the president likes it because it sounds like he's being tough on foreign systems when what he's really doing is giving those systems a thumbs up. So, you know, it's, it's, it's totally upside down and backwards, and I'm doing everything I can just to get it to go away as quickly as possible. But, you know, vi- vigilance is required. Otherwise, you do end up with a U.S. version of compulsory licensing. Peter, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. This Better Science, Better Health podcast is made possible with the generous support of the Global Innovation Policy Center of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, Pfizer, Gilead, Bio, and Medtrack by Informa. 